0: We are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer.
1: You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out.
0: Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this. Is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day.
1: This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host Frank Rains Jr. along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Kofi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. History through the eyes of faith. This is Frank Range Jr. I'm being brought to you through the sound waves, produced by producer Wes, who is here in the Red Door Studio, along with our esteemed guest today, Angie Ferris. I'm
0: now a guest, and
1: well, I get yeah, a guest every time.
0: Yeah, it's so great. A to guest be here. to the studio. Thank you. Studio. You're right. not
1: a permanent fixture in the studio. Yes,
0: right. Thank you for. Allowing you me are to guest. come and bring this these things that I find interesting. This to is share. a
1: podcast. You might want to get closer to the mic.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, a little close. I mean, however you want to do that. Okay. Get the levels. Um. Yeah. So we're 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 gonna you re- to record an episode? Let's record an episode of this podcast. Sounds like a plan. And let's talk about. I tell you what. Here's let's just, let's shake it up a little bit. Let's talk about something that happened after the episode that we just talked about. So it's kind of chronological. Oh, something
0: that just happened since we recorded the last episode. No, I'm
1: just being, I'm trying to be clever.
0: Oh, I had something.
1: Okay, go.
0: I tried a new dessert.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she tried a dessert and uh, I tried it too. And you want to talk about it?
0: It was interesting.
1: I don't think it's, I don't, it probably is marketed as a dessert, but also, it's a way, I don't know. So Philadelphia cream cheese, I had to, happen to see that they sell what's called a cheesecake crumble or a cheesecake. So you're thinking, well, you make cheesecake out of cream cheese. So they just took their cream cheese and they made it taste like a cheesecake. I don't know. And I just saw it and thought, I'm going to buy that. And I bought it. It comes in a pack of two, if you're familiar. I don't know. I've never really seen it before. Um. And it's you open up a little dish, and it's got cheesecake, and the flavor I chose with strawberry. So it's got some, like, strawberry sauce and a little cheesecake filling, and then you crumple a graham cracker crumble thing on top of it. It's
0: already crumbled. You just dump it on there. You dump it
1: on there. And Angie saw me having it, and she goes, what is that? And I said, it's just a thing I bought. I'm going to try it. She goes, well, I want one. I'm like, all right, here, here's the other one. And she's trying to act like it's going to be, have some sort of healthy attribute to it. Well, because it's, it's
0: not flour, okay? <laughs> so that's a good thing for me. Right. Okay.
1: And I said, I'm sure it's just got all kinds of sugar in it. And I started reading all the sugar that's in it. And it is completely yeah. a dessert. I mean, it is just all but about. But it does
0: have, it is very, it does not taste super sweet because it's got so much cream cheese in it. So yeah. it's all mixed in there together, and it was good. It was very good. It was, I don't know that I would do it again because it's very processed, and I did not. My brain did not feel a hundred percent after. No, I it's not so something
1: I should do. No offense, <laughs> Philadelphia cream cheese. It's just I ate it, and I'm like, okay, that was just a lot of sugar, and but I enjoyed it. It's like eating a donut, I guess. Mm, yeah, to a degree. Probably. Okay. Anyway, we had that. That happened since we recorded last. Yes. Um, I had a story that I wanted to share from our recent trip to the beach. Um, it was a uh, Sunday. It was a week ago today. And I was, um, Ron and I had taken a couple of electric bikes to the beach. <clears throat> and I say the beach, we went to the area where there's shops and restaurants and stuff that are on the beach. Okay. And we parked the bikes, locked them up, took a little stroll, went to a little shop, went somewhere else, sat down, having a little beverage. And I noticed on my location on my phone that my son Baylor and his friend were somewhat close by. I happened to see them, wave them down. They came over, talked to them for a little bit. Clouds are coming in, and the forecast is storms coming. And you know how at the beach every day sometimes there's storms coming in. Yeah. Yeah. So, we, the clouds are getting darker, but to me it looks like they're pushing away from the coast. Not, hold on, <coughs> not out to sea, but like they're going to start after they get inland a little bit. Uh, so, I wasn't as much concerned about it, but I can tell it's starting to, it might get bad, so we should start heading back. So, we get on the bikes, and we're heading back through this little neighborhood that cuts back through where we're going, and I text... Um, baylor and i'm like y'all need to head back now because it's starting to lightning and uh the wind is picking up and as we get we're probably maybe two miles from where we're going and these electric bikes have a little throttle on their handlebar you pedal and you Mm -hmm. keep that power going but if you hit that throttle you can get up like over 20 miles an hour right And we're starting to haul and it's starting to rain. It's starting to rain hard. Like it's starting to just pelt you and it's cold. And we're seeing people in golf carts and other people on bikes just kind of yelling and everybody's excited because we're getting, everybody's getting soaked. Right. And it's kind of fun because there's nothing you can do but just like holler, yes, this is bad. And we're flying and it's now just downpour, just sheets. <clears throat> and I'm going, I get into the neighborhood that we're heading into and I'm going over this long wooden bridge and I'm going fast and I'm at way ahead of Rhonda, so I'll slow down because I'm concerned that I'm kind of leaving her. And she gets. I let her pass me and uh, I'm like, gosh, I hope Baylor and Austin are okay because I don't know if when they got my message, if they decided to stay put or if they're out. And almost the moment after I had that thought, to my left, going about 20 with me, is Baylor going, we got to go. We got to go. His hair flying back, completely soaked, too. And that was one of the highlights of the whole trip for me.
0: It's just that image of your son.
1: at In that moment, like, I hope he's okay. We
0: got to go. Was he on a bike, too? Yeah.
1: He had pulled. Yeah. So apparently he had been behind us. For a while.
0: (laughs) Oh, so he was telling you, we got to go, we got to go.
1: Yeah, and he was just pulling up beside me, you know, (laughs) and I mean, our shoes were full of water. Oh, wow. We were drenched. It can
0: come fast at the beach, like in just a minute.
1: We were drenched, and so we get back to the house, and we're taking off all the wet clothes and stuff, and I just, then the next day, I'm like, man, had we, had he hit a bump or something, I mean... That's a bad wreck. If you're flying at that speed and something happens, I was like, gosh, we got fortunate that nothing, the water, you didn't slide out or. Yeah. But I still have a fond memory of looking and seeing that.
0: (laughs) Isn't it funny, the little things? And then you Mm. talk about it forever. Then it's like, oh, I'm going to talk about it forever. We got to go. We got to go. That's going to come up 20 years from now. Yeah. And it's going to be like a thing. Yeah. It's mm. really
1: a lot of fun. And so we had a good, good time. Yep. Uh, Yeah. So we could go today. I was caught in a rainstorm. Yeah. All right. So, so that's the episode. Yeah. And, so um, here's,
0: I, I have a story and, and we'll be quick folks. Um, one, I'm a planner. Y'all might not know that, but it is my, I like to have things planned out. I have um, grown more mellow but still a, pl- a planner. Like one of the things when you know like Tim and I first started traveling together was Tim did not want to know where we were stopping for the night. He didn't want he wanted to be where we could just be spontaneous and do what we wanted to do and I needed to have it all planned out before we left. Because back then you didn't have the internet. You didn't have, you know, like you could you had to do your research, find out where you're going, find your hotel room, all that stuff. Thank Technology has helped us greatly, but we've now migrated to the point where I can wait until the day to make the reservation. So we're kind of into the day, and can see kind of where we're going to be. And he has more comfortable, okay, saying we're going to stop here, you know, that kind of thing. But normally, I'm uh, tend to be picky. But y'all have probably picked up. Well, on you that. should be. I'm picky. well. well yes, you are. So. The So we're planning this trip to Colorado and our adult children have decided that they want to come to Colorado. It's a particular area that we all really like and we want to be there together. And so they start, there's a lot going on. I said, y'all just pick the VRBO. I don't care. Y'all just pick the place we're going to stay you know, you be the searchers and we'll work it out. So they start sending us different options and we're like, yeah, this would work, but that works. So we kind of zeroed in on a place and thought we were going to stay there and then saw in the fine print that if you're coming in the winter, which March is still not spring there, that you need a four wheel drive and it's up in the mountains and we're like, okay, this isn't going to work. So the next text we get from them about it is, hey, we think we found a place, but we would really, we can give you the link if you really have to have it, but we'd rather just you see it when you get there. Oh. And I went, okay. You did? I did. I went, okay. Later in a conversation with my daughter, I'm like, y'all must really think that I'm going to love it. She said, either that or we don't want your input on it. We don't want to give you a chance to criticize it. But I think producer Wes has a few pictures I've sent him. So Wes, it's the ones, I think there's like four or five of them that are particularly a house you can see. So this is in Manitou Springs up on the side of the hill Overlooking, that's the front door. This place is built into the side of the hill. It was renovated by Andrew Lloyd Wright's granddaughter. Wow. And you see that big glass window right there? Yes. That's three stories, a shade that drops down. So there's a bedroom on the top floor, then there's a living area, and then there's a bedroom on the bottom floor. Wow! And then this wing over here is a whole nother bedroom with glass all around it, that right there. And so that was what... um, our, wow. Our son and his wife were staying in that part with their two little girls. We were down in the basement. I think there's a picture, but you can tell the views from there. Look. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And if that's you were there really, when it was a little super cool. when it was a little warmer, you could open the doors and we could have used the patio. And that's a cool window. There's another picture I think I sent of our granddaughter sitting in that window. Mhm. So maybe not. Yeah, down there on the bottom. In the middle, yeah. Um Uh, And then the one to the left of that you can kind of see is that was our view from downstairs. And there's the deer just come up and that's we get up one morning and there he is.
1: That's a funny looking deer.
0: Isn't it? Those are mule deer out there. So that was like a Tennessee. That was a cool surprise. It was a neat place. You could hear everybody. That's really neat. Talking. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I'll come back to those others later on. Um, we okay. can talk about that if we have a chance at the end but
1: i think the people on the listening are really enjoying those pictures
0: well i'll put them up on our instagram folks the week this episode comes out just keep checking in if it's not there i'll get it there and yep. we'll you can see some of our vacation and it's called oh i can't remember what it's called but i'm sure you can find it vrbo manitou springs so I think it's called the Vista House or something like that. Because the view, you could see Pikes Peak off to the right when mm-hmm. you were out on the porch. And anyway, I hear there's
1: great donuts at the top of Pikes Peak.
0: I've heard that too. Mm-hmm. actually got to try some. Anyway, I didn't get a chance. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's a fun place. We love it out there. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of elevation. though. I mean, like we were at six, 7,000 feet and above for a whole week. So, yeah, joints were feeling that.
1: Yeah, hmm. what you were feeling the joints <laughs> in Colorado? No, the
0: joints in my body were feeling oh, the okay. elevation, but the
1: other joints helped the joints. In yeah, your body. I love the joints. Yeah, she does. Um, so we're into episode ninety-one. Wow, we're. Uh, I think I remember we kind of did a wrap-up on the Crusades on the Crusade, and um, we're going to talk about some of the people involved in the Crusades. Little personalities, positioning, yeah, I mean, well, events. Well, no,
0: let's phrase that a little bit differently. We're not really going to talk about... There were several names that were mentioned during the course of... Well, dis-
1: Richard the Lionheart. Yeah, that it.
0: we will come to later on. Later on. Okay, as we move through history. But what we're doing now is going back to this end. Um, I'm going to need to check my dates, but pretty much around the end of the 11th century. And um, talking about... What some- was the
1: first crusade? Yeah.
0: yeah, so we, we went and covered the topic, the Crusades. Now we're going back to around the end of the 11th century and talking about some other things. Okay. okay. All right. So um,
1: That has to do with faith.
0: Obviously, because it's history to the eyes of faith. Mm-hmm. So remember, we've had this discussion about the Church of Piety and the Church of Power. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to kind of go into some things around that. All right. I guess that's the way to put that. These first comments are coming from Robert Godfrey in his lecture series, A Survey of Church History. And his. um, We also talked about the investiture controversy. Do you remember what that is? The idea that the pope wants to appoint the bishops, but the king feels like they should appoint the bishops. So there's the struggle between church and state. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, what Godfrey says is the competition between church and state for primacy in medieval society fostered protests from many people who objected to the church's quest for power and influence. Okay. Monasticism offered a different vision for the church. Okay? Okay. So, you've got that church of power. And then now he's not using the words power and piety. Those come from Rodney Stark, but he's kind of talking about the same thing because he says monasticism offered a different vision for the church. Monastic communities emphasize leaving behind one's family, property and worldly values in order to focus exclusively on God. Eventually, many monastic orders were given so much wealth that their focus on simple living was exchanged for luxury, sloth and laxity. Hmm. Because they're being pulled into this feudal system and are being given lands and they're farming the land. And so things are growing into more. New voices would call for reform and for a return to the monastic ideals of poverty, moral rigor and spiritual discipline. So that's what we're going to move into is these new voices. Okay, we're going to do a little bit more on the background in this situation and tr- try to grab the climate of what's happening. And then we're going to talk about some particular new voices in this monastic movement. Okay. Okay. So now jumping back into the book, uh church history and plain language, I believe the author's Bruce Shelley. Uh, he says the medieval poverty movement is a timeless reminder that political Christianity is only partial Christianity. That's that thing we've talked about that. There's, Something else going on besides just the organized church. Okay. The Christian faith is more than papal policy, much more. What shall it profit the church as well as men to gain the world and lose her soul? Jesus said that.
1: I thought that sounded familiar. In the
0: Gospels. What does it profit you if you gain the world and lose your soul? Also where he says you have to take up your cross daily and follow me right after that. What advantage are canon laws, Holy Crusades, Episcopal appointments, and scholastic scholastic disputations, which we'll come back to the scholastic a little bit later. But those things, what advantage are those things if common people receive a stone when asking for bread? Right. Okay. Okay. The gospel of voluntary poverty drew its strength from a deep and widespread resentment of a corrupt and neglectful priesthood. (coughs) So what we have going here at this point in the Middle Ages is a deep and widespread resentment of a corrupt and neglectful priesthood. The Back to the Apostles movement was often allied with political and economic restlessness in a rapidly changing and expanding society but at its heart was the spiritual hunger of people. Okay, so this is being called the voluntary pov- the gospel of voluntary poverty, the back to the apostles movement. Okay, at a time when it was desperately needed, pastoral care was a lost art.
1: And he's talking about right here during the end of the 11th yeah. century.
0: Yeah, in the this point in the Middle Ages. Robert Grosseteste... Gross teste, I guess that's how you say that. The able Bishop of Lincoln, England, from 1235 to 1253, decried the covetousness, greed, and immorality of the clergy. He said, and I quote, As the life of pastors is the book of the laity, it is manifest that such as these are the preachers of all errors and wickedness. The so lot. that's around
1: 1200.
0: In the 13th century, yes.
1: And he's saying that these pastors are just full of wickedness.
0: Yeah. And the foundation of all of this, he said, is the Roman court. It appoints not pastors, but destroyers of men. That's some pretty large frustration. So a pretty
1: dysfunctional church.
0: In the sense of gain the whole world and lose your soul, yes. His complaint had a familiar ring to it. As early as the 10th century, monastic reformers had called for a return to the poverty of the early church. You look back at that early time when they didn't have power and prestige and were leaning on God every day and taking care of the poor and the widowed and, all the, and they're going, okay, we need to go back to that. Every zealous preacher knew if apostolic poverty is the Christian ideal, then bishops in their embellished palaces and monks in their wealthy cloisters were not living the Christian life. If apostolic poverty is the Christian ideal, then bishops in their embellished palaces and monks in their wealthy cloisters are not living the Christian life.
1: No, they're living, they're living the worldly pleasures and comforts.
0: In earlier centuries, however, all such appeals to sacrifice were conveniently channeled into some new monastic reform. Within the church itself, it was business as usual. So like, yes, let's create this order over here, but we'll keep doing our business. Okay, move it over that way. The 12th and 13th centuries proved to be different. Not all preachers of apostolic poverty were willing to remain within the acceptable boundaries of the church. When they turned against the church, they entered the ranks of heretics. So... If you turned against the church, you entered the ranks of heretics. And so he's going to talk a little bit about what that means. Modern Christians find it all but impossible to understand the medieval attitude toward heresy. Okay. So heresy is defined as non-orthodox. Okay. So outside the teachings of scripture, in this case, outside the teachings of the church. We believe deep today. We believe deeply that religious faith is a matter of personal choice. But we seldom think of religious beliefs as life and death matters. You believe what you want to believe. That's your deal. I believe what I want to believe. That's my deal. That's kind of the approach of modern Mm -hmm. um, Christians. Why should anyone either die for his own faith or kill another for his? Why should that ever happen? You know, that's a concept doesn't make sense to us. Medieval Christians, however, never considered faith strictly private. They didn't really consider anything private. Society was lived together and everything was connected. And okay. I didn't make a choice that wasn't going to affect. I didn't make choices. The, my place in the world made choices for me.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay. Christian beliefs were the cement of society. Denying a doctrine was tantamount to treason. Wow. Christendom was to shift the image, a sociopolitical body and the Christian faith was its life giving soul. So Christendom, which is all of these Christian nations would be all, you know, we, on that colored map we had uh, two episodes ago, and we saw the colors on there, all of that is considered Christendom, and it was a socio-political body, and the faith was its essential life-giving soul. So heresy in Christendom was no more acceptable than cancer in the flesh. If you have cancer in your flesh, we want to cut it out. Want to kill it? Make it go away before it makes everything sick. Same thing with heresy in Christendom.
1: In the Middle Ages.
0: Yes. But what is heresy? In the 12th century, it was the denial by a baptized person, which is anybody because you got baptized when you were born, of any revealed truth of the Christian faith. So if you denied any revealed truth of the Christian faith, it was considered heresy. Among these truths were the unity of the church and the divine appointment of the pope, as head of the church,
1: mm.
0: as head of the Christian body. So, if you denied that the Pope was divinely appointed as head of the Christian body, or if you were not in unity with the church's beliefs, then you were a heretic. Therefore, disobedience to established authority was itself heresy. Disobedience to established authority was itself heresy. Now, a cancer that has to be cut out. In dealing with heretics, then, the church had two primary objectives. One, the conversion of the heretic and the protection of Christian society. The second one, the conversion of the heretic and the protection of Christian society. But how far can the church go to protect society? Is it right to take a life in order to protect other lives? Heresy drove the Catholic Church to her most serious internal conflict. How can the church employ violence to safeguard a peaceful society? And we're going to come back and have a discussion on that violence and what that looked like. Goes by the name of the Inquisition. But now we're just setting this up to say this is the environment of, of what's going on in this tension. The church deliberately accepted a line of action all but impossible to reconcile with the eternal kingdom toward which she aspired. It, the contradiction was not widely apparent at the time. The same church that sent crusading armies against the infidels could command the burning of heretics. Almost everyone agreed that a pure church was the will of God.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay. This is interesting. So we got a lot of tension going on.
1: And it's a little scary.
0: Yeah. And, um,. Yeah. So here's this is something there's a book called Famous Men of the Middle Ages. I think we've referred to that before. Also a textbook. Um, And then has a quote that I found interesting and wanted to stick in here. There is a sad fact about the institutions which men found. No matter how clearly the founders may state their goals. Eventually, high purposes degenerate and organizations develop bureaucracies whose main goal seems to be to preserve their own existence and power.
1: Say it again in layman's terms.
0: We've talked about that before. We have. That, uh, how did we say it? That the purpose of the organization becomes subservient to the existence of the organization. So... I'll read it all again. There's a sad fact about the institutions which men found. So the organized church is an institution founded by men. Right. Okay. At least in our Protestant viewpoint. Mm -hmm. No matter how clearly the founders may state their goals, eventually high purposes degenerate. So the lofty goals that they have to generate mm-hmm. and organizations develop bureaucracies mm-hmm. whose main goal seems to be to preserve their own existence and power. And we see that in corporations. Anytime people get together, it's about more. Uh, we see it in politics. We, it's an accusation given to our uh, national capital right now. And a lot of the people that work there, Mm-hmm. OK, so it's it's a tendency of human institutions. The church is affected by this tendency as well.
1: The, the purpose of the institution becomes to preserve it rather than the original purpose.
0: Yes. Yes. Every so often during the Middle Ages, someone noticed that the church was in need of reform. So we've talked about some of these already. Benedict had withdrawn from Rome and founded his monastery around 500 A.D. Remember him? 500 years later, Hildebrand, another monk, led a reform movement from within the church eventually as Pope himself, Gregory VII. A hundred years later, two more reformers arose and we're going to talk about them in just a minute. And okay? I'm
1: excited to talk about them. Okay. I want to hear about these two guys.
0: So now going back to Robert Godfrey, he's going to talk about this a little bit. He says, during the high Middle Ages, many voices began calling for a return to the monastic ideal. Monastic communities had originally been established as places of separation, withdrawal from the world, and complete focus on one's spiritual condition. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The principles of poverty, chastity, and obedience were to govern monastic lifestyle. However, corruption gradually began to enter some monastic communities. Certain monastic communities accumulated considerable wealth and became places of luxury instead of houses of prayer. Okay. Normal. That's what happens with institutions, right? Throughout the 11th and 12th centuries, new monastic orders such as the Cluniacs and the Cistercians emerged with a renewed emphasis on traditional monastic principles. The
1: Cluniacs and the...
0: Cistercians. Mm-hmm. Okay, we mentioned the Cluniacs before because I think they're the one that came up with the idea that the Pope should be appointing the that the Church should be appointing the bishops that the, the lay investiture thing back then. So now we're going to talk about this. Is not one of the two that the that the um, famous men of the Middle Ages mentioned. This is another precursor to those two that we've already mentioned in our stories about the Crusades, and that's Bernard. Bernard of Clairvaux, a passionate Cistercian abbot, became the symbol of the ideal monk. He lived from 1090 to 1153. So at the beginning of those crusades, and we heard about he, he was the one that ended up going and having to take the bad monk who was persecuting all the Jews and killing all the Jews and sent him back and this all Saint that. This is St. Bernard? Yeah, I think he gets, he gets, uh what do they call it, canonized. Yeah, at some point. Bernard, So, a wise and learned monk, Bernard served as an advisor to popes and other powerful officials. Bernard zealously advocated personal holiness and a disciplined, self-denying Christian life. Bernard cultivated a great knowledge of God and of the human soul. Dante, you know, he was a writer, and Mm -hmm. his Paradiso... Bernard serves as the God who leads the pilgrim through heaven and toward God. So he incorporated him into his fictional writing because he was such a renowned figure and looked up to. As the 12th century drew to an end, monasticism was beginning to find new expressions in the mendicant orders. That word is M-E-N-D-I-C-A-N-T. So I looked up mendicant orders, and mm-hmm. I think the word actually means to beg, but I looked up what the orders were. and mm-hmm. This it says mendicant orders are primarily certain catholic christian religious orders that have adopted a lifestyle of poverty traveling and living in urban areas for purposes of preaching evangelization and ministry especially to the poor at their foundation these orders rejected the previously established monastic model this model prescribed living in one stable one stable isolated community mm-hmm. where members worked at a trade and owned property in common OK, including the land, buildings and other wealth. By contrast, the mendicants avoided owning property at all, did not work out a trade and embraced a poor, often itinerant lifestyle. They depended for their survival on the goodwill of the people to whom they preached. So their vow of poverty was we're not going to own property.
1: This sounds like Jesus hippies.
0: <laughs> and we're going to travel around. Okay. Mm. While most monks had withdrawn into monastic communities, the friars of the mendicant order spent their time among the common people. These new orders combined a lifestyle of self-denial with an active preaching ministry. So the priest didn't necessarily have an active preaching ministry. Okay, people weren't really all about going to church and listen to the priest talk. And I don't know how all that went down. But these guys are focused on it. The most influential figure among these new mendicant orders were two, Francis of Assisti and Dominic of Osma.
1: I heard of these guys.
0: Yes. So we're going to start with Francis of Assisti. We're not going to
1: go back and talk about St. Bernard. I'm trying to figure out why they named a dog after him. (laughs) What were the attributes of the dog? They said, oh my gosh. you know what?
0: And when we were in we're gonna Colorado, Saint Bernard. outside that coffee shop we discussed the last mm-hmm. episode, mm-hmm. there was humongous St. Bernard that was a puppy. And he was huge already. Like, oh my gosh. I forget his name. Aria talked to him. She had a conversation with him.
1: Mm-hmm. Call Aria,
0: see what the name uh, was. She probably remember. Okay. Francis of Assisi. Francis was an Italian friar who lived from eleven eighty two until twelve twenty six.
1: He was a mendicant monk.
0: Well, this word came up for what Francis and and uh Dominic became the starters of the mendicant order. So the name wasn't there yet.
1: I got it, I got it. They were the they were the OGs.
0: Yeah, so this guy's just uh Italian friar who lived from 1182 to 1226. That's in the late 12th century, right? Mm -hmm. He was the son of a wealthy merchant family in one of the new prosperous towns of northern Italy. Remember, we're talking about those prosperous towns and the trading that was Mm -hmm. going on. Mm -hmm. That's where he was. He seems to have been well-educated and to have indulged himself in all the usual passions of youth. But while he was still a young man, a change came over him. One night when he had been attending a costume party, this is a story from uh, famous men of the Middle Ages. He disappeared and his friends found him sitting on the curb of the street, dejected. What's the matter, Francis? Did you get married? They asked. Yes, he replied to the fairest of all brides, Lady Poverty. Francis had become convinced that the source of all troubles came from quarrels over property. Hmm. He renounced his family fortune. But instead of withdrawing to a monastery to devote himself to prayer and study, he resolved to stay in the world and seek to help and serve all those he could. Sounds a little bit like Jesus. Yep. He and the followers who soon joined him had no possessions and lived by begging. Francis would not let any of his followers accept more food or money than they needed for one day. All of this is very biblical teaching. Yeah. Okay. And he had
1: 12 followers, right? Yeah.
0: And, and I don't, I'm that just going to be honest.
1: I said he had 12 followers. I don't and know. Had, yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know how many he had. Yeah, so he he had ended 12. up with a lot more than that. But I don't like that. I'm just saying he lived by begging. I think he lived by the contributions of other people. Right. But begging sounds like what we imagine somebody sitting on a street corner, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Francis would not, so he wouldn't let, them take more than they needed for a day and everywhere they went they sought out the sick and the poor and did what they could to help them all while urging people to repent from their sins francis's followers who came to be called franciscans were different from earlier monks in at least two ways First, they were much more strict about the vow of poverty. Many of the older monasteries owned large amounts of land and were quite prosperous. Of course, none of the Benedictine monks owned the land personally, but as a group, they benefited. So even though it wasn't theirs personally, they were all benefiting off of it. Chilling. Francis insisted that his followers should never own anything, even as a group. The second difference was that unlike the earlier monks, Francis did not believe his followers should withdraw from the world and remain in one place. Instead, he told them they should travel from place to place, never staying anywhere too long, lest they be tempted to acquire possessions and settle down. Mm. It was in traveling from town to town that the Franciscans encountered their first opposition. In several towns, the local bishops did not look kindly on these new itinerant monks who begged for their food. In some towns, the bishops issued orders forbidding the Franciscans from preaching or begging. They were evicted from some towns and imprisoned in others. Finally, Francis himself made a journey to Rome to seek an audience with the Pope. Francis sincerely wanted confirmation from the Pope as to whether his new order and its way of life conformed to God's will. To the surprise of many, the Pope gave Francis his blessing and formally recognized his followers. What one of the other authors that I read said was that the papacy had learned from previous mistakes of trying to shut down monks. And so they went with this one.
1: And what was the who was the Pope?
0: Mm, Don't know that right here. Don't know. Uh, I should just go with the don't know and then look that up. he gave orders that the franciscans were to be allowed by all the shops i think it's innocent the third i'm pretty sure it's innocent the third who is a personality that we will come to um he gave orders that the franciscans were to be allowed by all the shops of the church all the shops of the church to beg preach bishops i bet that's supposed to be bishops and got cut up to beg preach and help the poor notice was sent to the bishops that the franciscans were under the protection the special protection of the pope Francis called his group the Friars Minor, Lesser Brothers. We call them the Franciscans. Almost from the start, Francis's vision was for the world. He tried to go to Syria and to Morocco, but was thwarted by misfortune. Then, in a crusading expedition to Egypt, gave him... A crusading expedition to Egypt gave him his opportunity with 11 companions, 11, very close. There were 12 altogether. Mm -hmm. He accompanied the army to the Middle East where 12 in 1219, he tried unsuccessfully to convert the Sultan of Egypt from Egypt. He visited the holy places in Palestine and it was more than a year before he saw Italy again. During his absence, differences arose among the brothers some felt that their rapid growth demanded more organization more rules more supervision others tried to cling to the original principles of christ-like poverty upon francis's return to italy he saw that the problems were more than he could handle he was a model not a manager Mm. isn't that an interesting thing to recognize your role he's a model not a manager so he appealed to the Pope to appoint Cardinal Ugolino as his adviser, And soon he surrendered the administration of the Brotherhood to his associate, Peter de Cattaneo. And here's his prayer. Lord Jesus, he prayed. I give thee back this family which thou hast in, didst entrust to me. Thou knowest that I have no longer the strength or the ability to take care of it. It is a familiar scene in Christ, that was the end quote. It is a familiar scene in Christian organizations. One man establishes, another man administers. Eugolino, who later became Pope Gregory the Ninth, admired Francis greatly, but he was above all a prince of the church. He admired Francis greatly, but he was above all a prince of the church. He saw the possibilities of the movement as an agent for the advancement of the Roman church. So he's seeing in this Franciscan movement, in the possibilities of it, an opportunity for the advancement of the Roman church. He would reform the church by giving the Franciscans authority. Francis wanted to reform the world by preaching Christ-like humility.
1: And then Francis died at some point in the 40s, right? 1240s. He was
0: canonized St. Francis in 1228, two years after his death. So he died in 1226. Oh, okay. Francis was the first saint considered to have received the stigmata. What's the stigmata? You remember that?
1: Isn't it the same markings of Christ's wounds on the cross?
0: Yeah. Reports spread that the wounds of Christ had appeared on Francis's body near the end of his life. The appearance of these wounds or stigmata was believed to be a miraculous indication of a close connection with Christ. After Francis died, the rules of his order gradually changed. The vows of poverty became less strict, and groups of monks began to acquire buildings and land. Many of the Franciscans opposed the acquisition of property. They felt it went against what Francis has taught, but in the end, the less strict brothers won. Years later, when one of the strict followers of Francis saw the great basilica which had been built over the tomb of Saint Francis at Assisi, he is reported to have remarked, quote, "Now the only thing you lack is women." End quote. And it was not long before, in common report, the friars had these too. And so the Franciscans went the same way as the earlier monastic orders. Well, that's sad. Francis was a product of his age, a lover of lady poverty, but he belongs to all the Christian centuries. Quote For a few years, wrote Herbert Workman, the Sermon on the Mount became a realized fact, but the dream passed from all but a few. So the teachings are still there, the inspiration's still there. The order became institutionalized, but the fact that the idea that the teachings exist is a, is good. Is yeah, there to and, inspire and he looked
1: up as a well known saint. Yes. Real quick. I'm just concerned. Wes, is our technology still good? It seems to be lagging quite a bit up there. Okay.
0: Okay. So, that sent Francis of Assisi. The other guy is Dominic of Osma, and he was a Spanish friar who lived from 1170 until 1221. Almost the exact same time. But he's in Spain. Where was... Francis Italy Italy for Dominic poverty was not an end in itself but rather a means of ride of ridding oneself from distractions for the sake of study okay with his decidedly intellectual character Dominic was interested in combating heresy and false doctrine Dominic sought to raise up an order of educated defenders of the faith who would be preachers and teachers for the common people So he's taking that approach of raising up people who he could teach, who could then teach others. Right?
1: Wasn't that use? Oh, use of that in episode uh, ninety? Yeah, or uh, eighty-nine. Eighty-nine about um, the navigators.
0: Yes, and and what the navigators refers to as spiritual generations, but the idea is like these Dominic's ideas. These people don't know, and they need to be taught. And so I want to raise up people who can teach them, okay? Um, Dominic, see, let's see. The second, he was a Spaniard from a noble family. He had become a priest and was serving as secretary to a bishop. While traveling with his bishops through southern France, he was disturbed by several things. First, the clergy of the church were not living as they should. They were not respected by the people. Second, he learned that many Christians had no knowledge of the stories of the Bible or what they meant. Okay, somewhere in all this, I came across a phrase that said, and I might come to it yet in the notes, but it was like that there was this growing rise of lay people who were becoming more, who were reading, studying the Bible or hearing the stories of the Bible, reading the stories of the Bible in their native language. And I was like, wait, wait. And I went and did some research on that. And that was not happening at this time. Okay, it was rare in the vernacular in their own language it was rare to get it that way okay so that's what he's saying is that many christians had no knowledge of the stories of the bible or what they meant their life you know we know this if you think about your life there are traditions that you've been exposed to that you just take as traditions and you don't know where they came from or what they mean until you choose to go investigate them you just do them. And that's way many of the practices in these sacraments were. This is just what we do, mm. and we don't understand the backstory. We don't know the backstory. We just know this is what we have to do. And this is what we have to do to be a part of society. This is what we have to do to not be condemned to hell, and this is what we do, okay? So he's noticing that they don't know the stories of the Bible or what they meant. So Dominic believed that the heretics would listen if the preachers themselves were committed to poverty. So first of all, the clergy should live according to what they're preaching, and then that would motivate people to listen, Mm -hmm. right? Which is true, right? To win the heretics, Dominic went forth among them as a poor man, barefoot and begging. Dominic decided that what was needed was a group of traveling teachers. Dominic began the movement himself and soon was joined by a number of companions. They went from town to town preaching and teaching the lay people and called on the clergy to reform their lives. So they're doing those two things. They're preaching and teaching the lay people and they're asking the clergy to call on the clergy to reform their lives. From the very beginning, the Dominicans, as the followers of Dominic came to be called, were devoted to education. And today around the world, there are many schools which have been founded and are run by Dominicans. So you will still run, you run into all over the world, Franciscan monks, Dominican monks. Okay. In 1220, the Dominican mission and lifestyle gained official approval. Let's see. I'm going back to look at his dates. He died in 1221. So it was official approval the year before he died. Um, The new preaching order that we know as Dominicans was called a mendicant which means begging and the term friar or brother distinguished them from monks because unlike monks, they went forth to live among the people to preach and teach. We've talked about that before. Like what's the difference between a friar and a monk? And there you go. Okay. Cause the friars are moving. They don't have a place. It's
1: interesting that mendicant came from Dominican.
0: It didn't. It means begging. Okay.
1: It didn't. You're right. You just said that.
0: Um, I don't think it did. Uh, let's see. One of the most important things Dominic did was use his skills as an administrator to devise a system of government for the Dominican order. Each region was divided into provinces, and in each region the order was governed by representatives elected by each of the Dominican houses. It is very likely that the English Parliament, which began under the auspices first of Simon de Montfort and then of Edward I, whose confessor and friends were Dominicans, owed some of its features to this Dominican influence.
1: Okay, so That's Parliament.
0: Yeah, English Parliament. Because of their efficient organization and dedication to education, St. Dominic was often called the Hammer of Heretics and his friars, the Hounds of God, who drove lost sheep back into the fold.
1: Now, well, What was Don- Dominic's fir- full name?
0: Mm.
1: You said it in the beginning?
0: Uh, I just have Dominic of D- Ozma. That's all I have.
1: Okay, Dominic of Osma.
0: Yeah. So um, Dominic was canonized in 1234, which would have been 13 years after his death, and his order continued to develop into one of the most influential groups within the medieval church. After his death, he was credited with receiving the idea of the rosary from the Virgin Mary that was after his death unfortunately for the reputation of saint dominic and his order in later years the popes chose the dominicans to direct and staff a new institution the inquisition whose purpose was to bring heretics back to the church by more stringent means than preaching and teaching so unfortunately when the inquisition starts they appointed the dominicans to oversee it and that what was, when did
1: the inquisition start
0: we will talk about that when we get to the topic of the Inquisition, which I am not prepared to bring today.
1: But you can't tell me when it started?
0: No. Sometime around this time, but I'm finding out different things about it. So I don't think it was like it just started and only lasted this long. I think there are different periods of, but, but the policy of it started somewhere, I would say, in the 13th century. Okay. But I don't know that for sure. And we'll be bringing that to a future episode. Um, So that's a shame that the Dominicans got chosen to head up this thing. okay? because they were called the hounds of God. They wanted to drive lost sheep back into the fold, but whether they wanted to force them through torture, I don't know. Probably not. When heretics failed to recant to their satisfaction, they often took drastic measures to prevent heresy from contaminating others. Remember that idea? Like how do you keep the church pure and at the same time want to reform the heretic? So if you won't reform, we got to take you out. Like a cancer. Yep. The methods of the Inquisition represent some of the worst things ever done in the name of Christianity, but its excesses cannot be charged to St. Dominic. Okay. All right. Thus lady poverty, which is the name of a chapter in this um, church history in plain language, this idea of living a life of poverty and depending only on Christ and his generosity through others. That idea remained a challenge to the church of wealth and power, but like, The vision of universal dominion, it proved an impossibility for the whole church for all times. It proved an impossibility for the whole church for all times. So that is the tension. It is the tension when we own things, right?
1: Yeah. I would be nice not to ever own anything. But know that you're taken care of.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And Scripture tells us we are. Consider the birds of the air. I wish my creditors
1: knew all
0: that. Yeah. So it's a little bit. That's Francis and Dominic and this movement that grows out of the corruptness of the church. So you can you can see that the organized church now and we're going to talk a little when we talk about the third when we talk about the Inquisition is becoming a powerhouse that is not not super
1: similar to its foundation
0: yes not reflecting that mm-hmm. and so this is an effort to try to reflect that now one thing i didn't do research on that i wanted to and just didn't get back to because i've i've read about it and i just needed to like find quotes and find information and I didn't go back to doing that but christians were known in the early days for the way they cared for the poor and the widowed and the hungry and the idea of hospitals and treatment and taking care of those around you grew out of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something important for us to know today because the government did not do that. It was the church that was doing that. And then the church got married to the government, so maybe it looked like the government was doing it. And then all these years later, we think it's an expectation of government.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. In the book, "Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. yeah. <clears throat> it was not just a book it was a radio show that got turned into a book he talks about the one of the, the evidence of god in our culture is the fact that we have hospitals and that we have things the purpose to care for others regardless of your faith if you have faith or not that there's something innate within all of us that we expect care from others.
0: Yeah. And I think we expect it to a greater degree since Christ than before Christ.
1: Yeah. That's a good point.
0: You know, I think, I think so too. There's, um, yeah. I have a, uh, another story I can share. I know we have things in the studio we need to address. I, after, we were at this conference and the Navigators are really stressing spiritual generations. And I don't just want to say the Navigators. We're part of that group. And it's always it's been on our heart to work with people to come to Christ if they haven't and then help them grow in such a way that they can lead other people to Christ whom they can help grow, who then can lead other people, you know, the spiritual generations. That, that was Jesus' model. He had his 12 And then he had his three inner circle. And then he had the one that really, you know, Peter, kind of the ringleader. And and when he left here to ascend to the Father, that's who his message was left with. And yet here we are 2,000 years later with believers all throughout the world. And it hasn't spread by force. It's spread by those relationships. So we're at a point My husband and I, where it's almost like we're coming out of this, I don't even know how to describe it exactly, but recommitting to that in, in, it's fresh for us. That's a good way to put it where it was fresh coming out of college. And we've, you know, raised our family and lived our life and continued to practice those methods and work with people. And that's really where my heart is guys, you know? And so now it's fresh again. And so I was talking to Tim, I was like, how does the podcast fit into that? I mean, like, how does that You know, because this is just like talking into a microphone and people are listening and I'd love to hear from you guys, but honestly, we don't that much. So please reach reach out. We even have a chat room. You can, you know, contribute, become a monthly giver and be in the chat room with us. We'd love to talk to you. But there's not a lot of personal interaction going on right now. I'm like, how does that work? And I thought it was so cool what he said, because he said, isn't that what the podcast is about? Is you're tracing the history of all those spiritual generations. You're testifying to what God has done throughout human history. Mm -hmm. And so I want us to keep highlighting that. I want us to think about that. This topic lends itself very much to it because there's this clear contrast between the organization, the bureaucracy, the power of the church, and these men who are saying, No, wait, this is the way of Christ. We need to reform. We need to pull back. But throughout all these generations, there are faithful Christians who are finding their way with Jesus, regardless of what that big church is doing. And sometimes God's using that church to bring things about. Yeah, it's all very interesting.
1: That's a good, uh, that's a good aspect. I'm going to be thinking on that.
0: You know, like, how can we talk? <clears throat> just like the things about the idea that there were these natural interventions that prevented Muslims, some of those Muslim captors, Later in history, from where we are now from from taking those lands and that they remain Christian, that didn't mean mean that those lands were better or more perfect or any of that. but it did mean that there was an environment created in those lands where it was easier to talk about Jesus and to have these kind of movements that might not have been possible had the Muslims overtaken it, you know? yeah, so it it's kind of cool to think back on that anyway. <clears throat> well this was a place to bring that up. So, you talked about being at the beach. I want to tell a story. I'm doing all the talking. I'm sorry. Go tell it. So, we went to Colorado Springs, the Rocky Mountains, but we went to the desert.
1: Oh, that's right. I remember Sarah posting a picture.
0: Have you ever heard of the great Sand Dunes National Park?
1: Maybe. Yeah, I guess so. I saw the picture.
0: It's in the Rocky Mountains. And, Wes, if you want to put those pictures back up. It's, in, and it's the largest dunes in, in North America. They're huge. It's like the Sahara. There's a picture of our family mm-hmm. on the dunes. Now, this is looking back toward the mountains. Most of the dunes are to the side or in front of us in that picture. But it was a half a mile walk from the parking area across the sand just to get to the dunes. But those are people, Frank, in those pictures.
1: Yeah, it's like Tatooine.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's huge. It's more... I guess like Tatooine, it's like, look, that's a person way up on the top of that hill.
1: That's pretty cool.
0: And those are two people there. So you can imagine how big those things are. And then I think there's a couple of Sarah rented a, a board and a sled. And so we were using that
1: and somebody trying to get a broken ankle.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's a that's a picture back of the house. But um, I think there's another one of of. Tim taking a picture, like, oh, there's the babies on the sand. Mm-hmm. That little seven month old was loving it, okay? But I think there it is. Is that not the coolest shot?
1: That is cool. The Sarah took
0: that. Tim had walked up there to the top of the hill and y'all it's a picture of Tim taking a picture like he's bent over over his tripod with the sun setting behind it and we saw the most beautiful sunset so there gives you perspective Frank that's all the dunes and those are probably like two miles away from where we are wow and then there's the mountains back behind that but wind I told you it was the trip of the wind that wind it was about 40 degrees maybe and the wind was blowing like I don't know how many, lots of many miles per hour. And you're walking across the sand. Of course, what does the sand do when the wind's blowing? It blows up in your eyes. It is. It was all over the place. So it was quite the trip. I think just about everybody had a meltdown before the day was over. But it was amazing. Driving out in the Rocky Mountains and discovering the desert. Quite fun. That
1: looks pretty cool. And speaking of, you showed that sunset there. I sent Wes a picture. Of the sunset that I saw on Monday of this past week when I was at the beach, and maybe he can throw that up there for us. Wow! I love that icon of my face on your phone.
0: It, God is amazing, is he not?
1: Did you not it, see the picture yet? Though it,
0: it's ne- no, but I'm just saying it's never the same twice. Oh yeah, check that out. It's just amazing. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool.
0: Send it to me so I can put it on our Instagram and people can see nah, it. Yeah, That's a
1: pretty private photo. I don't want We to seen it. So
0: we have some beautiful sunsets in our front yard. And we've been there for many years now. The sunsets
1: and in your front yard?
0: You can sit in our front yard and see beautiful I know. sunsets. Okay, go ahead. But... One of the things that was cool... You know, I don't know how many of y'all have Google Photos. Yes, I have Google Photos. And they will create collages and things for you sometimes. And it created this... Oh, similar shots, and it made a collage. And it was sunsets from our travels. Like, there's our front yard, and mm-hmm. then there's a few years later over at this spot. And it was just the coolest testimony to God's cre- creativity. It was just... Oh, my gosh. Every person is unique. Every place is unique. Every sunset is unique Like It is God is showing out Okay What about this gift bag Is it unique It's it's kind of unique Yeah Alright It's for the other person In the studio
1: So it's probably me
0: It is for you
1: Well the previous episode There was a gift bag That was for producer Wes <laughs> This episode There's a gift bag It's apparently for me Yep It's a medium size Brown paper bag
0: And We hope you like it
1: You know, I'm excited. It's got good weight. It's a used bag. It's got paper.
0: Just because I have to have some paper. I just have to. Is it cold? It's a little warm cold. It's supposed to be cold. Yes.
1: (laughs) It's coffee beans.
0: It's actually ground, I think. No, it's beans. Is it? I can tell by holding it. Oh, I thought they ground it, but that's okay.
1: But I, I I have a grinder. Umpire state i'm smelling it mountain roasters colorado that smells really do good do you smell
0: it? do you see the name of it the name cabin of, yeah that is from that coffee shop
1: i'm going to read about it here i won't do it on the air but i'm going to read about she it said and it, it was cool. one of
0: their most popular if you i hope you like a dark roast i do I, I went with the dark roast and it's called cabin colorado
1: coffee merchants is a small batch specialty coffee roaster that roast it's dark, folks. That roast of oh, the OK, I can't read it all. Very cool. Well, thank you very much.: You're welcome. Enjoy. Uh, yeah, I want to read about it. Um, well, thank everybody for listening to episode uh, 91, and go back, check them all, check out all the episodes. and um,
0: let us hear from you please oh yeah rate us rate us on Spotify. Rate us and review rate us and review we need to
1: send us a message give us some comments
0: we'd love to hear from you
1: we'll see you next time this has been history through the eyes of faith podcast please rate and review subscribe or follow wherever you stream your podcasts you may also contact us and comment at one thing only.org just click on the history through the eyes of faith podcast tab you can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Kofi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.